Welcome to Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. I am very excited today. In this episode, we get a chance to speak with Sue of Coco Forge in Port Townsend, Washington. In this place, she um, does artisan making of chocolate with origins of the chocolate cocoa nibs uh, from many countries. And it is as though she magically brings all of these beautiful beans to this place and does her own alchemy and produces chocolates that I think of more similarly to wine because of the intensity of flavors and the way that she draws out the aromas. If you have not yet tried Cocoa Forge chocolate, it's an absolute must. So please definitely check it out online. And I'm going to introduce to you Sue, who's going to talk to us about the journey of finding uh, chocolate, falling in love with it, and um, creating this one-woman show um, of just extraordinary, exceptional chocolate making, which has at its center um, a deep respect for environment. So anyway, Sue, we met when I came into some tastings that you were doing early on. And one of the things that really interested me was that I had been learning about chocolate. I had been a culinary student. I had seen a documentary about the making of chocolate. I think it might've been Theobroma, right? That's, it's the food of the gods, right? And then I happened to go to Italy to study food at one point, And I met the Amade brothers who um, started to talk about terroir, and chocolate. So what do you want to tell us, tell a, a listener about terroir? We're in the middle of where you make the chocolate, the whole process. And maybe you want to start us even just grounding us in the place, like how you found this place, why you chose this place to make it, how you get the cocoa beans here, all of those things. You just, you know, tell us any part of that. Take it away. Yeah, take it away. Okay. So it's actually a chocolate story that I came to Port Townsend. It was on my radar, but it was a little bit too far. It was farther than I wanted to go uh, away from my family. But there was a particular chocolate that um, Claudio Corallo, who was know, really one of the first people in recent times to grow and produce chocolate. And he was, he um, brought back an old plantation on the island of Sao Tome. And where is that? Where is off the coast of Africa. Oh, okay. Thank you. And so we can dive into that later too. Africa is kind of the last place that cocoa or cacao arrived. And by the way, those words are interchangeable. The the word cacao is a little bit trendy these days. Industry-wide, it's usually cocoa beans. But in a Spanish-speaking country, the word cacao is used for all of the for the plant and all of the process too. So it just depends on who you're talking to and where you are in the world. Okay. So <laughs> you couldn't buy Claudio Corallo bars back then. This is probably 15 years ago mm-hmm. anywhere. And so I was scouring the earth trying to find one because I just, you know, he's like a hero. I just need to find one. And I don't even know how it happened, but I found out that there was a Claudio Corallo bar at Elevated Ice Cream. Oh my gosh. And this is probably close to 15 years ago, you know, uh-huh. 12 or 13 years ago. And so 
yeah, I don't even know what it was, but I figured it out. I literally got in the car and drove 850 miles oh to come and taste this chocolate. And um, I was only here for a couple of hours. I wish I, I had turned been, around and went back. I wish I had been friends with you when I I would totally have done that. That's great. That's a great story. So that was, that was, you know, early on. And I, I you know, I loved it here and I ended up moving here. Um, yeah. So, so I guess one of the questions I'll ask, because I, I read about your truck, did you come in the truck that you love? Oh, so no, I, no, I didn't drive that one. <laughs> you didn't drive that one? Okay. I might not have made it all the way down. Uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. A little bumpy. Yeah. Um, so, so you had already fallen in love with chocolate because you were actually kind of pursuing the Holy Grail of chocolate at that point of your life, right? 15 years ago. Like you knew, you knew something about chocolate already. How did you, cause I, I know earlier we spoke and you mentioned that you had, had been in construction and I, um, and things started clicking in my brain because my, my partner who I'm just, I'm just going to call saucy boy right now. He, he was in construction of roofs like yourself mm-hmm. and there's a particular ability to balance things a particular way of seeing what process makes the most sense is the most efficient partly for safety. Like if you're up on the roof, you better not take too much time and you better keep your balance and all that kind of thing. And he is one of the finest pastry makers I know. And like, if it's about leveling out something, having it look even and nice, there is something about chocolate making. I think that if you have that certain approach to doing things, it shows through in the way that you make things all the time, I bet. So tell me a little about, you know, the chocolate like how did you get from 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 that the love of construction and you know how did you decide to make because mm, yeah. it wasn't always what you did right so I should point out too that there's a difference between a chocolatier and a yeah. chocolate maker and it's interesting because when I was a chocolatier I called myself a chocolate maker yeah I'm making chocolates and it wasn't until I just really went down the rabbit hole with chocolate making that no these are they're completely different they're you know, the same medium, but on two ends of the spectrum. And sorry, I'm talking with my hands, but <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> so I, I actually, speaking of Italy, I, I was at a couple of different classes over there and oh, they were back to back. One was for chocolatiers. Okay. And then the next week it was for chocolate makers. Oh. And it was really interesting to see the different personality types. Ah, oh, interesting. Um, and the chocolate makers tend to be um, they come from engineering backgrounds and they're more kind of the science guys and they love tinkering with equipment or maybe they don't love it, but they can do it mm-hmm. and they find it interesting. And the chocolate making class was a hundred percent men. Oh. And the chocolatier class was a hundred percent women. Oh, so inter- interestingly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's not that way. Yeah. It just happened yeah. to turn out that way in these classes in Italy. Yeah. But, um, so I just wanted to point out the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I do here is the, I do the chocolate making. Yeah. And you've described it in the past as if, if you are looking for the truffles or the things with the color and the different, um, additive ingredients like ginger, you know, all these things that kind of make it more like candy, right? That's kind of the chocolatier, but at an elevated level where you're really looking for some fine combinations of flavors and the chocolate making from what I'm seeing with what you're doing is you're actually bringing out the essence of the cocoa bean itself, yeah? So actually, a chocolatier 
usually, mm-hmm. will they will purchase chocolate that's mm-hmm. already chocolate. Uh-huh. So yeah, they're yes. not... And then they make beautiful, wonderful yes. confections mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so chocolate makers actually, if they call themselves a bean-to-bar maker, they are sourcing those beans around uh, the equator perfect. Or, or, or however it is they're, wherever they're starting in their process. Some chocolate makers will start with a cocoa liquor, cocoa mass. It's already been roasted, cracked, windowed, okay. and it's already been ground. So it's kind of a paste. Okay. Um, so it just depends. But you took on the whole kit and caboodle. The whole kit and caboodle. The whole yeah. kit and caboodle because, yeah, you could have not done the first part of the process, which is involved. Right. But you you took it all on. So there was something that clicked in you. And what, why is that? Is that the ability to ensure the quality <laughs> control? Or? Oh, maybe partially. Okay. Um, it's interesting to me. Mm, okay. And every single step is just such a dance. Mm-hmm. And all these origins are just so different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came to the chocolate world through the back door. I didn't get into it because I love chocolate. Oh. Um, I got into it because I was mad about <laughs> chocolate and its quality. Oh, and so I'm old enough to have seen changes over the years. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking it was me. Well, I'm just getting old and my taste buds are... You know, um, it's not true. It's mm-hmm. the industry has changed. Yeah. And even as recent as like the 1950s, 1960s, Half of all the beans at that point were still considered fine flavor beans. Oh. Whereas now, fine flavor beans are maybe five to seven percent of all beans grown in the world. Mm. And what do you mean by fine flavor beans? Because most most people probably don't really know what that means. Like they'll be thinking, "Oh, it's kind of all the same, isn't it?" And you talk about fine flavor beans, and you also talk about heirlooms. Mm-hmm. You want to explain that? So heirlooms are that's another recent. I'm not sure what to call it, but it's so it's a, a partnership really between the fine chocolate industry and the USDA. And so just with the science, the recent science, now we're able to do DNA testing. Mm. And so this kind of all started right about 2005. Okay. And so it was Dr. Motemeyer that was in South America or Mesoamerica and noticing that there were clusters of these different varietals. Mm. And so for the longest time, we thought there were three varietals. We thought, okay, Criollo, Trinitario, and Forastero. And that's not true. I mean, mm. we know now that there's at least 21. And that science, you know, science keeps happening. Yes. And we keep uh, discovering new things. So um, there's, all, there's all these varietals out there. So when we talk about fine flavor beans... There's a lot that goes into that term because it's not only genetics, it's how they're farming, it's how they're doing their post-harvest practices, mm-hmm. it's how they're fermenting, how they're drying, mm-hmm. and how these beans are being grown. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily, they are very particular on where they grow. They're within 20 degrees of the equator. They don't like to be in the wind. They don't like to be too high. They don't like to be too cold or too hot. They need a certain amount of forest floor detritus on their feet. They like to be spaced apart. They don't like to be crunched in in a plantation setting in the full sun. You know, they need to have madre de, de cacao, which is the shade trees, mm. to canopy them. There, it's it's an understory mm-hmm. tree, and so it's very particular. And um, 
we think that the genus is 10 million years old. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it has wow. developed a long, long time yeah. and it's genius. Yeah. And so when I was talking about, I came to the chocolate world through the back door, it was through that uh, botany door. Okay. And um, so just, that's been an interest of mine for just you know, kind of a lifetime thing, mm-hmm. but um, also a longtime student of herbalism. And so not just medicinal, but, you know, with cacao, just it's the jackpot. Um, (laughs) But with the mythology and the folklore behind Mm -hmm. it and the different uses and the different cultures that, you know, ways that they used it and how important it was to these people than is today, too, if you get the right stuff. Right, right. (laughs) That's right. So what happened with me is... (laughs) I was mad about chocolate and I was mad that it, it didn't taste like it used to. And at that time, I was also interested in eating flowers because we used to eat our flowers uh-huh, and we yeah. don't anymore. Yeah. And I was mad about the roses because, you know, somebody gives you a rose. The first thing you do is smell it mm-hmm. and they don't smell anymore. Yeah. And it's really annoying to me because wow. real roses are just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so I was growing 52 different kinds of own root heirloom roses to see which ones tasted the best. Wow. Um, (laughs) And then I was mulching with cocoa bean husks. And so this one particular May morning, the roses, the sun came up and it hit those roses and it hit that mulch. And it was just this amazing concoction of chocolate and roses. And I just, at that moment, I just went, I'm going to go make the finest dark chocolate rose cream ever oh my created. goodness something that would make the queen of england swoon because that's her thing right that's amazing <laughs> very british flavor um so i harvested these two big sinkfuls of uh, rose petals uh-huh. and i made this amazing center um you know steep the petals in the cream and it was incredible it was beautiful and this beautiful pink and it was just great and so it came down to, okay, now I need the best chocolate I can find. And I wasn't a chocolate maker at that time. But that was yeah. the turning point. It was like, I can't find it. I guess I'll make it myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I am falling in love with your story more and more. And I can't tell you, like, you know, in terms of quality of food, right, and, and the Tao of food, recognizing that you have some agency in how you bring food into the world, right? And that's that's like a important moment to take that on and to go down that path, even though it's difficult, right? Like it's a difficult path. It's not easy um, to bring something like that to the world because I, I know what you're talking about. I remember as a child, I think, you know, we had like the, the candy store, candy, chocolate, and I remember chocolate chips, when you would um, get them hot out of the oven, chocolate chip cookies, you could pull them apart and there was an elasticity in the chocolate. And then slowly over time, I noticed you didn't have that elasticity. So something changed in the, in the mm. chocolate ingredients. And then I later, when I started trying out better qualities of chocolate chips when I was in culinary school, I realized there were still some who were using like the more original formula, I think, because I could do the same thing again, find them a little stretchier. And I don't know if that's from the cocoa mass itself or something about it, 
Um, but it, I think it had less of those additive, like soy lecithin products that are more inside the chocolate that you kind of get over the counter. And so when you're talking to me about noticing that the quality had declined, that's a huge revelation. But I personally did not say, I'm going to go make chocolate. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was like, I'm going to go find better chocolate, you know. So finding better chocolate meant, okay, um, you know, when I was in Italy and I got a chance to meet the Amade brothers, like they were the first ones who talked to me about terroir of chocolate that you could source the cacao beans from different places and they would have a different flavor from each place. And the chocolate made from it would have a different flavor. And you just explained to me the the complexity of the volatile aromas. You were saying there are 800 plus aromas? Chemical compounds, Chemical yeah. compounds. And maybe you could share with the readers, like, your process for, like, cultivating those aromas differently in each bar. You know, like, I don't think everybody knows what that's like. So I'll just describe the experience that you just gave me in, in the the facility, she opened up one of the barrels, essentially, of um, cocoa, cocoa beans and gave me a whiff of them. And in one barrel, I felt like I was smelling fermentation happening and smelling vanilla. And then in the next one, I was smelling like dark chocolate figs and cherries. And I mean, it's an overwhelming experience just to breathe it in. And then to have the mind and the heart and the artistry to preserve and keep in balance the the right volatile compounds. Like, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about what that's like for a chocolate maker. So just the word volatile, I hadn't thought about this before until I was listening to you, but it's, they're fragile and they're going to fly away. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to be pretty careful and pretty gentle at each step. And sometimes you learn the hard way. So in every cocoa bean, there's bitterness, astringency, and acidity. That's actually what we're tasting. Mm -hmm. But we think with the olfactory senses, we're tasting these other cherry notes and graham cracker notes Mm -hmm. and walnut or whatever. Those are made up of the volatile chemical compounds. Mm -hmm. So I always think about if I'm smelling that in whatever the process is, in the roasting or in the grinding or in the refining or um, even if it's just sitting out on the racks, um, if I'm smelling those notes, that means those flavors are leaving. Yeah. They're going to, so they need to be captured mm-hmm. at every step mm-hmm. along the way because they will, you could just wind up with bitterness, astringency, and acidity. Right. Your stats, your chocolate. That would be scary. <laughs> that would be scary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because there, there's such a, um, a sensory experience when you eat chocolate, if you have fine quality chocolate. And, um, you know, there's, there's something I was so impressed because, um, you brought me into the bean room, uh, which, you know, has all of these barrels in it and they have these flags sitting on top that represent the countries. And I was so pleased to see the Philippines. I'm, I'm partly Filipino and, um, and I, at one point had interviewed a chocolatier who, you know, gave me an overview of the different countries of origin, um, as she was sourcing these beans into the U.S., and she sort of discounted the Philippines and, and in all likelihood, because at that time there wasn't such a good process. Like, you know, they didn't, they weren't really working with SOPs on, you know, how to ferment, when to ferment. And um, you just explained that you have three days, right, to get those beans into fermentation or then you have problems. They germinate. Yeah. And if you think about the, just the plant itself, 
Let me back up a little bit. So when the pod is on the tree, the pod won't fall off by itself. It needs to be cut off by a human or not off by a monkey or a squirrel. Otherwise, it just stays on the tree. Okay. So this, this all, everything about this tree has a purpose. So you get the pod, you open the pod, and it's designed so that the fruit that's around the seeds that we, that's what we use to make the chocolate, it's very mucilaginous, it's very sticky, and it's very refreshing. And that is what humans were interested in. I mean, for the fruit, yes, mainly for fermenting the fruit. That's mm-hmm. a little bit of history there. Um, humans have been interested in fermenting things for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if you pop a seed in your mouth, you have to suck on it. You have to suck the fruit off because, you know, you're in the tropics. It's hot. Chocolate isn't the first thing on your mind, but the fruit is. And so you're sucking on this very, it's like watermelon and kiwi at the same time. That's amazing. And so by the time you're trucking through the forest and you're sucking on the seed, by the time you encounter the seed, you're away from the mother tree and you spit it out. You're not, because you're not, it's not in your mouth because you're trying to get to the seed. Mm. Um, And so the same with the squirrels and the monkeys. So that's how it, it reseeds itself. Okay. Which is brilliant. Yes. (laughs) But. Sorry, I got off track. We were talking about what we were talking about. So let's talk about germination. Okay, so when the pods are harvested, we don't do a bricks test in the pod like we do with grapes. Okay. Um, because if you puncture the pod, then that is an avenue for disease okay. and pests. And let's just explain the bricks test. Bricks um, allows you to kind of look into something that's kind of like, I think of it like a light spectrometer of some sort that tells you what the level is of uh, sugar. sugar. In, in the thing that you're making. So pastry people will use it to um, analyze their ice cream or their sorbets and things like that. Sorbet more, I think. And then for chocolate makers, you just don't do that because it would, it would cause a problem with the bean. Some people, after the pods are harvested and the fruit is scooped out, they might do it. Some people do it later on. Okay. Um, because they need those sugars to do the fermentation. Okay. So they're, they're inoculated naturally just mm. with the yeasties in the air. Okay. Um, there are some places in the world where they actually do inoculate it with different like wine yeast. Like in Hawaii, oh. it's too cold usually. Um, okay. They call that the North Pole <laughs> chocolate. And so they give it a head start. Okay. Um, but in most of the world, it's just natural. Okay. Amazing. So, um, you just have such a wealth of knowledge around um, the cultivation of the understory and the the how the cocoa beans grow and how they, you know, kind of perpetuate these um, cocoa groves. And you were telling me a nice story about um, someone who found you, Ms. Chir- Charita, is that her name? Mama Charita. Mama Charita, <laughs> Mama Charita from the Philippines. And I just thought that the uniqueness of that story to me was the development of the relationship with the farmers um, themselves. And I feel like, you know, one important piece to the story around Cocoa Forge that's important to me as a listener uh, and learner is is that um, you are a one-woman show developing relationships across the globe <laughs> for chocolate and, and that your cocoa beans are coming to Port Townsend on a sailboat. Am I right? They will be. This, they will be. Okay. 
Okay. Did you, I don't know if you saw the save out there in the bean room on the wall. Yes. Um, yes. So that, so it is being built right now. Okay. And they really are good at um, keeping people updated on how the project's going. Okay. And so if you're interested, it's salecargo.org. Oh, cool. And um, you, so you there's just amazing, they're amazing, courageous people. Wow. So that was an important piece to me before I even started the Cocoa Forge mm-hmm. is the transportation. Mm-hmm. And so it was important to be in a port. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time I was thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, I can, I can figure out somebody to help me get my beans up, sail my beans up. And there wasn't anyone, there was nobody doing that big route yeah. um, down the West Coast. We have it on the East Coast. Oh, okay. Um, in fact, the founders of the Seba met on the Tres Hombres. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's over on the other side. But for a hundred years, we have not had the ability over here on the West Coast. Oh. So this is... It's such a big deal, yeah. and especially for the town of Port Townsend and any little port town, really, mm-hmm. to bring this back. It's important. Yeah. Um, and we have the perfect harbor, deep water. Mm-hmm. It's That's right, because a long time ago, they thought this would have been the capital yeah. of Washington. That's right. And so I do, I do think this, you know, for me, like in my daydreaming, I think this could be one of those things that, you know, really creates the economy um, at a different level and, you know, is a return in some ways to the dreams of the past, both about how we think about, you know, supporting people in the community, right, in in the um, shipping and sailing and and the building of boats and all of that. Um, And then also with, I think, right, the reduction of carbon footprint that people think about doing, talk about doing, and you see these larger manufacturers of many um, food and beverage items talking about like offsetting their carbon footprint, but you're just not making it in the first place, which is really, you know, that's a fundamental commitment that you've made that I haven't seen a lot of people do. And so that part is one of those things where I'm like, well, it's not going to be easy, the path you've chosen. Um, What is it within you that drives that level of deep commitment there? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take a, take a pause okay. and think about it. I'm not sure how to answer that. I just do. Yeah, so, uh, but I mean, okay, let's, let's walk it back a step. Okay, good, thanks. So, when did you have the thought, I'm going to get my beans here through sailing? When did that happen? It really bothered me that just... If you look at the shipping industry, mm-hmm. it's disturbing. Okay. And we don't need to do it. And I'm all about local too. I'm, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick mm-hmm. maker, and the chocolate maker. Yes. You should be able to go to your person. Like I love shopping in rural Italy and France. Mm-hmm. You get your basket and you go get your bread and then you go get your pasta and you go, you know, get your cheese or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you can ask any question that you have and they tell you, mm-hmm. they tell you exactly where things came from. Like if you go to Key City Fish, they'll tell you who caught it, where they caught it, how they caught it. And, you know, how did this end up on my plate? It's just this amazing thing that, you know, we just take for granted. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how I went down that road either. Well, so, so you must have been thinking something about wanting to keep it, local in a in a way that you know 
the sailing part of it must have been some thought in there um, that sailing is a big part of this community, maybe? Is that what you got? Was it just that in the air made you think, oh, if I if I don't like the problem of what the shipping industry is doing to our environment in the Salish Sea, for example, where we live, then you have to find an alternative, yep. alternative yeah. solution. So what's the least polluting way of transporting? I think that's probably, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I don't want no, to put the words in your great. head. Thank you. But maybe that's how it happened. Um, yeah, that and these beans are not coming from these big, huge collection points. Ah. Um, you don't buy them on the stock market. These beans are micro lots. You know, I might get a bag at a time. Okay. The Yeah. So who's going to sail that boat? Oh, what? that's part of their business plan. Um, oh, so you, you, anybody, you can take, you can, they're going to do sail training ah. as part of this project amazing yeah and you can do any leg that you want so they're gonna their northern port is vancouver okay and their southern port is costa rica okay okay and the route is going to be so starting in costa rica they're going to go south down panama colombia ecuador to northern peru wow over to the galapagos amazing over to hawaii all the way back over to vancouver and then they're going to stop in Port Townsend wow. and then go all the way back down the West Coast. Wow. And hopefully stopping and picking up and delivering as yeah. they go. Oh, so um, exciting. The ship is 150 feet long. Mm-hmm. There's four cargo holds. Okay. So they even have, they're going to be able to drop propellers in the water mm-hmm. as they're sailing. Okay. That's going to generate power, send it back up so they can store wow. power. So they're going to be underway whether there's wind or not. Excellent. So there goes that Such argument concern, right. of that we can't do it. Sitting out there in the ocean with right. all the, yeah. Yeah, and that's innovative technology, right? Because my my father, who's, who's deceased, he and his brother used to sail lumber around. Mm-hmm. And those were real concerns, like not having wind or, you know, the storms and the this and the that. Like it's, it, um, it's a different time. You know, but how do you mitigate against those things? It's nice to hear that they can be underway regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it uses, you know, those ideas of harnessing energy in, in ways that are conservative and respectful of environment. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was an important piece of the puzzle. And things didn't really break loose with um, getting this business going until that piece was in place. Okay. It was just important to not pollute. And um, like even with the wrappers, that was a big, huge project, just trying to figure out, you know, the best way to um, wrap chocolate, I mean, I have to say, is with aluminum foil. Mm. And I didn't want my chocolate sitting next to foil. I didn't want it sitting next to paper that had been treated. Mm. And I didn't want like all these extra, you know, cardboard and all this stuff and the Mm. plastic and it had to be something that was biodegradable and compostable. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went down that track and that they're double wrapped with classine, oh. which is that it is just the paper. It's how they make the paper is what makes it kind of that. It almost feels like a wax paper or yeah. parchment, but it's yeah. not. And so I know what's in it. I know the ingredients in the ink, mm-hmm. but as a business owner, I couldn't certify it myself. I couldn't. So it's not on my wrappers that, oh, this is biodegradable and compost because yeah. I can't prove it. I mean, um, I know it, 
Uh-huh. And that's why I chose it. Uh-huh. Um, but it has to be done by the paper manufacturer uh-huh. in order to have it certified. Oh, that was another thing I learned. Yeah. So you have you have an amazing level of persistence and um, just incredible ability to execute. Like when I think about all these different decisions you've made and, you know, it's inspiring to me because I think if if more people who are making food, making beverages, making things of fine quality, follow this path, right, where they feel connected um, to the environment and they understand the concept of terroir and they are looking to kind of teach the world about terroir um, and about our connectedness in different ways, um, that that just means, you know, so, like we could have more business people out there doing the same thing and we would just have, you know, just a, a healthier food system overall. And so that's one of the things that really inspired me about the clarity that you've had in uh, making all these choices all the way along because there's so many choices you could make and many of them are easier to make. Um, and that level of commitment, there's there's just really, we were talking earlier about um, this concept of chi because you were talking about Mama Charita and how, um, you know, her vitality, the way that she cultivated this lost orchard and brought it back to life and all these things. And she's just like a bright, shining person uh, in your description of her. And that that carries over into the the product she delivers to you. And, you know, the your care and attention to all of it, it's communicated in the bars, in the beauty of the bars, in that they're special. They're bigger than the average um, chocolate bar. Yeah. Um, and for a good purpose because you've committed. She, you, so earlier you told me, tell us about the, the sculptural <laughs> component of the packaging. The, the bars are, the, the molds for the bars are, they were a custom sculpture. And it's, um, it's a little ship that's uh, sailing uh, through the night and there's stars in the water and stars in the sky and they're sailing off to this little island and there's a cacao tree on it. And I needed, I needed it. <laughs> I needed it to be that way because I want it to be, I, I want to transport you to these amazing places. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the bar is so big is because they couldn't get the sculpture any smaller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but that's, that's all about what gets um, transferred, right? There's always a translation piece to anything that we understand about food and we eat first with our eyes is what we always say. And so you're already telling me something about the importance of this bar before I even eat it, before it touches my mouth. And like, for me, it's very profound. Um, and so like, you know, somebody like me who just, who does like I'm year of the pig um, and my partner too, year of the pig. And the thing about year of the pig, if you, you know, follow these things is that we're indulgent in ways and we just appreciate this fine quality. And so the minute you hold it, the weight of it tells you something. Um, the look of the packaging tells you something. Um, and then, then, you know, at the end, when you're tasting all the flavors and you're smelling the aromas, you are transported. And you connect with the place of origin. And that experience to me, it's breathtaking. You know, it's, it's, it's rejuvenating. And the chi of the people involved, chi means life source, oxygen, you know, the things that give us energy, it gets communicated at every step of the process between all of the different people in the making. And, and then it, and 
ends up in the bar. So so you get this bar, and I, I tend to eat the dark chocolate, and I feel good because I know there are bioflavonoids in it, and I know I'm doing something good for my body, and it still feels indulgent, and it feels decadent. And then it also feels so pure. And I have to tell you that I don't get that feeling from any other chocolate bar. And I do love a lot of different chocolates, but this one feels so resonant on so many different levels of thinking about culinary philosophy and how do we get people to understand the importance of taking care of our earth more? How do we get them to understand the importance of connecting with people from different places, how how one might have started in the chocolate industry decades ago thinking, oh, the Philippines doesn't have a cocoa bean to offer, but now you find the right farmer who has the right chi, and all of a sudden you've got the right processes being done and the care being given to the cocoa bean, and now you have like this exceptional chocolate that you can make from it. So I think that conversation in particular is one we could probably talk about again another time but I want to thank you for what you're doing. And I would love for you to just take some time to, you know, say anything you want to say about the business um, to people. I want to remind them to go to the online store and remember that you are a, a one woman show, which to me just blows my mind. <laughs> the, the level of quality, it's, I think it would be like, having the opportunity to run with Olympic athlete, right? Or something. <laughs> and, and just basking in like the array of um, magic that you produce in each bar. But what would you like to say to, to listeners? I think besides transporting, hopefully transporting you to these amazing places, I would love to have the words to tell people to, to not sit in the judgment chair when they're tasting these different origins and not think about, Oh, which one do I like the best? Yeah. For whatever reason, no, it's, you know, the flavor notes or the smoothness or, or it doesn't matter, but instead enjoy the diversity and how different each one is. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think in my um, podcast sessions, you know, if we were to reimagine home economics and we were to talk about food and flavors and things with people of different origins that really is a key lesson in building awareness in people um you know to to not pass judgment to sit in that space um in in the Taoist tradition when i talk about the Tao of food it is that non-attachment that um gives you the space to recognize the beauty of all things right, in their due time and in the right season and with the right care and attention being given. All of it is beautiful. And so when people get stuck, because they get stuck, they're like, oh, I'm going to try all these different ones and I'm going to pick the one I like. And then if it's not available because you're getting these small batches from these farmers, they, they experience disappointment. But it's not for them to have. <laughs> it's not for them to have because the world produces what it produces in terms of cacao beans and the weather changes. And that's the experience of terroir, right? The different climate changes. And when we realize that we have to care for everything so much more carefully, right? Because, because we, we do want things to grow again. We do want those things to come back. And yet there's also something new to try, which creates a different dance for you because you have to figure out, well, how do I treat this mean? Uh, you know, just um, quickly, if you're able just to say like the, just compare the different sizes of some of the beans you talked about oh, and what you right. have to do. Yeah. So they, 
some of the wild harvest beans from Bolivia are just tiny, like um, like almost pea-sized. And then they can be up to the size of like a large almond or even bigger. Mm. So there's some from Guatemala that are cajaban that are, they're really big. And it's surprising. So the little ones, they're just powerhouses of flavor, mm. like finding a wild strawberry where it's, you know, kind of, tiny and oh, yeah. little and you're like, mmm. but it's packed with flavor. Yeah. And then when you go to the grocery store and bite into it, you know, get a big strawberry and it's beautiful, but it doesn't taste like anything. Mm. That's sometimes how it goes with the cocoa beans too. Oh, really? Not okay. necessarily with this, these big beans because uh-huh. they're really tasty too. Uh-huh. But yeah, they, they're all so different mm-hmm. and it has to do with genetics and it has to do with how they're processed, mm-hmm. fermented and dried and all the steps. Yeah. And with your process, you control so much of it and you make all these choices about what you want to enhance. And I remember the minute you told me about some of this, I I was like, oh, you're a maker and you're an artist because you you described that intuitive process. Right. Do you want to say a little something about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I don't think of it that way. I, I try and just get out of the way of these beans because they are really special and they are themselves they're unique and I don't want to get in the way of that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um so I just want to say that one if you if you love someone who loves chocolate you need to get one of these bars (laughs) and two everyone should love themselves enough to buy them (laughs) one of these bars so and I know there's um something that you you have a beautiful newsletter that comes out and it, it speaks to anybody who is a foodie or loves chocolate and chocoholics will will love it. Uh, and you're starting a, a subscription program called Chocolate Faucet. Is the that Chocolate right? Faucet. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be a sister site okay. to the Cocoa Forge. Okay. Uh, so they can link back and forth. Mm-hmm. But the Chocolate Faucet is really for people that they just want, just bring me the, just send me the chocolate. Yeah. It's going to be four bars a month. Mm-hmm. And I'm still deciding if it's going to be like surprise me or I might have categories too. I, it's, nice. it's all going to come down really soon. Okay. We're in the final stages of getting the site okay. set up. Oh, that's so exciting. And one thing I will tell listeners is if you have ever gone to a, a sushi restaurant and you've done omikasa, and I might not be saying that the best, um, my pronunciation is probably pretty off, um, but what it means is, chef, I'm in your hands. I, I just want to tell you that this concept with chocolate faucet and you know, giving yourself over to trusting, trusting that Sue is going to do right by you because she, <laughs> she really loves this process and this making and, and the beans. She has such a love for it. You don't have to think and you can just put yourself in her hands and just let her send you something because I, I guarantee it will be worth it and you will learn more about the world. <laughs> so... Sue, thank you so much for being our guest on Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. I love your chocolate. I'm excited about it, and I can't wait to see the ship coming in. And we'll have to reconnect when that comes up and talk more about everything. And we could have a whole other episode um, that goes more in detail about the process here, which is so beautiful. And I, I'm thanking you for picking Port Townsend because <laughs> I don't have to fly all the way across the, the world to have the good chocolate that you make. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.